Hi everyone, this is Dr. Jervik and this is going to be a overview of intracranial regulation and um, feeling this one's going to be a little bit longer than normal. So um, thinking of intracranial regulation, it, it's really referring to keeping a balance um, inside of our, our brain um, for optimal brain functioning. And so <clears throat> Anything that affects uh, the cranium, anything inside the, the brain, um, those things can all cause intracranial regulation issues. And so um, intracranial regulation is, is basically defined as the mechanisms or conditions that impact intracranial processing and function. <clears throat> and so, of course, the, the scope of intracranial regulation, um, we have optimal intracranial regulation is obviously the ideal, but then there can be impaired intracranial regulation, and, and that can vary from severe to moderate to mild. Now, there's a lot of normal physiological processes that the body just automatically does to try to keep intracranial regulation um, within a, a normal balance, and so, um, <clears throat> you know, our, our brain, uh, or not our brain, our bones of our skull, those are um, fixed by the time we're about five years um, old. And so within there, we have, um, you know, brain tissue, blood, and cerebral spinal fluid. And so if, if one of those increases, then that's going to cause a decrease in one of the other. So for example, if somebody has a tumor um, and that's growing, then that can decrease um, blood supply or cerebral spinal fluid. And so you can see where, um, you know, there's only so much room. So if one increases, the others are going to be impacted. <clears throat> I'm sure you've heard about the blood-brain barrier um, that keeps um, some things from being able to get into the brains. Um, it makes uh, neurotoxic substances harder to get in there. And the meninges... <coughs> There are three layers of protective membranes, um, the germ matter, arachnoid layer, and the pia matter. And um, within some of those things, we can end up with some um, hemorrhages. So you can end up with that subarachnoid hemorrhage, subdural hematoma, epidural hematoma. Um, and those would be um, usually from like an impact. And then um, we can also end up with meningitis, which we'll spend more time talking about at another time. And that's when those meninges are inflamed, um, if you break that down. So I talked about that autoregulation that, <clears throat> you know, there there's things that the, the body just automatically does to try and... Um, account for any changes, um, specifically like fluctuations in, in our uh, systemic blood pressure. The cerebral spinal fluid um, <clears throat> that's usually produced at about 20 milliliters an hour, and that helps to cushion and support the brain and other structures. Um, helps to provide some nutrients. <clears throat> that's why uh, we talk about um, it, it does have glucose in it. Now, another thing that the body will automatically do is um, hyperventilation, and that, that's a protective mechanism. And um, so carbon dioxide, and we'll, we'll spend more time talking about carbon dioxide, but it's a potent vasodilator. And so um, if we have too much carbon dioxide, um, the body will automatically hyperventilate to try and get rid of 
some of that um, carbon dioxide. Of course, there's going to be age-related differences. You know, little kiddos, the brain is still <clears throat> functioning, um, growing. Um, and then as somebody ages, <clears throat> we start seeing some of those atrophy potential slowing of those neurotransmitters that we talked about. And um, so let's talk a little bit more about um, things that are going to affect um, intracranial regulation. So impaired perfusion is probably one of the, the biggest ones. And so um, <clears throat> whether that is um, those bleedings that I talked about, like that intracranial hemorrhage or subdural hematoma or subarachnoid hemorrhoid. Um, those are often followed by a traumatic brain injury. And um, depending on how long that goes on, that can cause um, changes in delivery of oxygen and nutrients and, and significant dysfunction. We've talked about neurotransmitters already. And so thinking about the neurotransmitters, about the acetylcholine and how um, that is um, an important neurotransmitter with it um, <clears throat> and um, seizures can happen also from um, neuroactivity that is um, not being controlled um, within the brain. Um, glucose regulation, um, of course, the brain can't store glucose. Um, our liver helps us with that, right? And so um, the brain is going to be very susceptible to um, low glucose levels. Um, and so with that, um, that's why we'll see some of those level of consciousness changes with that. All right, so some of the big things that we're really going to focus on um, with intracranial regulation are the consequences of problems with intracranial regulation. And so cerebral edema is one of those um, things that can happen. So when we get edema of the brain, and um, there, there are several things that can cause it. So um, lesions in the brain, whether it's an abscess, a tumor, um, hematomas, and bleeding, head injuries, um, you know, those uh, traumatic brain injuries, and then they get post-traumatic brain swelling, uh, the cerebral infection, so that can be meningitis, which I've already mentioned, but also encephalitis, which is going to be more in the brain. There um, can be strokes, so whether we get a hemorrhagic stroke versus an ischemic stroke, um, which I'll talk about these more in a, in a later podcast, <clears throat> or um, toxic things. So we've talked about lead poisoning um, in a different one. That can be a problem. Um, hepatic encephalopathy, which we'll talk more about that in our senior year. So all of those things can um, cause cerebral edema. Now, um, one of our big things that we're going to really talk about is increase in the cranial pressure. And so when you have increased intracranial pressure, it's um, the, the normal pressure inside there is um, about 15. <clears throat> and so once it's <clears throat> sustained greater than 20, then we consider that increased intracranial pressure. And um, basically that the consequence of that increase in intracranial pressure is going to be impaired perfusion, right? So if we have increased pressure in there, then uh, perfusion to the brain is going to be the problem. 
So looking at risk factors, um, young adults and adolescents are going to be more um, likely to have problems related to um, injury, um, <clears throat> such as, uh, um, you know, accidents and those types of things, versus our elderly are going to have problems with um, falling. And so um, <clears throat> those types of things can be, be some of the differences between there. Of course, from um, an assessment standpoint, we're need, going to need to do a very thorough assessment, um, looking for all of those um, things that we've talked about, you know, changes in vision, hearing, balance, speech problems, chewing, swallowing, um, weakness, loss of bowel or bladder, <clears throat> um, unexplained severe headache. Uh, vomiting, um, a lot of different things. And, and that's not an all-inclusive list. Um, we're going to assess mental status. So we're going to <clears throat> look and see how does the person respond emotionally, their mood, cognitive functioning, personality. Has that changed? <clears throat> We've talked about the MMSE before. Um, so that is one of those things. And then the Glasgow Coma Scale is one of those things you're just going to have to kind of memorize. And so the Glasgow Coma Scale is a way to do a um, very quick neurological assessment, and um, it, it only is used, um, there's three things, so um, eye-opening, verbal response, and motor response. So notice that the Glasgow Coma Scale doesn't look at pupils or um, cranial nerves, right? So we're going to... <clears throat> look at the best score. And with the Glasgow Coma Scale, you can either get the highest score of 15 or the lowest score of three. And so um, that is um, available in either Iggy or in your um, Giddens book. So I would definitely look, <clears throat> pardon me for that. Uh, intracranial nerves, I am not going to be testing you on all of the intracranial nerves. So that's not going to be one of your biggest focuses. Um, again, talking about intracranial pressure, um, pressure, um, the earliest sign of increased intracranial pressure is a change in level of consciousness. And remember, uh, that can be confusion. It can be all kinds of different things. Um, lethar lethargy. Um, so we, we want it, we want to make sure that we're, we're watching for some of those things. Um, <clears throat> headache, um, is often characteristic of increase um, cranial pressure. Um, the pain is usually worse with a cough or um, having a bowel movement. And um, they can have um, <clears throat> vomiting that's not preceded by nausea. So all of a sudden they just have that vomiting. Um, infants are less specific. Um, so it's going to be that irritability, the bulging of the fontanelle, lethargy, flat affect, poor feeding. Um, that's going to be really important to see that those things are much more subtle in a uh, little kid. And so we're going to need to be monitoring for those. Um, there are some, some tools that we can use to monitor intracranial pressure. Um, there's an, in your pic, your textbook has a nice little picture on it. There's um, a subdural one. There's a IVC catheter, which um, there's some special things that we do for that one. A subarachnoid bolt, intraparenchymal, um, and then an epidural one. <clears throat> and so those are all different ways that we can actually measure 
um, intracranial pressure to actually see what it is. Um, Cushing's triad um, is one of those things, again, you're going to need to memorize this. Um, this helps us show when there's late signs of increased intracranial pressure. Uh, and so it's usually really an ominous sign. And so some of the things that we see that is we see hypertension um, and, and there's frequently a widening pulse pressure. And a widening pulse pressure means that my systolic is getting higher and my diastolic, um, the numbers between my systolic and diastolic is wider than it was on a previous blood pressure. Um, <clears throat> also with that, with that, we'll see bradycardia. And bradycardia um, is a very classic thing that happens with neurological issues. Um, and then respiratory patterns can change. It can go up, down, all kinds of different ways with increase in cranial pressure. Um, and then we might see some of those pupil changes, which is not part of Cushing's triad, but you might see some of those uh, pupil changes um, <clears throat> specifically because of the pressure on those cranial nerves. So the cerebral perfusion pressure, um, this is just telling us like how what we really want that um, perfusion to the brain. And um, there is a way to, to figure that out. Um, and, and that just helps us keep from being an ischemic injury. So neuroimaging studies, obviously we can do um, CAT scans. Um, usually it's gonna be a non-contrast CAT scan because uh, we're looking for bleeds, those types of things that show up that way. <clears throat> Could be an MRI. Um, X-rays, if we think that there's any fractures, um, any types of things like that. An EEG actually measures the brain electro electrical activity, and that's going to be important for somebody who's having seizures. Um, brain biopsy, if there's a tumor, and then a lumbar puncture. You'll definitely want to look more into lumbar puncture and what all goes into uh, proper positioning for the patient and those types of things. And that's going to help if we if we suspect an infection. Um, although it is always um, contraindicated to do a lumbar puncture if um, we suspect increase in cranial pressure. So that is one of those things. Um, pharmacology. Um, Manitol is one of the big medications you're going to need to know. It's an osmotic diuretic. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, your anti-epileptics, you'll need to know um, some of those. I'll talk more about those um, later on. Um, but those osmotic diuretics, those help um, <clears throat> decrease that intracranial pressure, and usually you'll see um, increase your output with that. Um, analgesics, we have to be careful and giving analgesics so that we can still monitor neurostatus. And then again, those anti-epileptics, those are going to be important for somebody who's at risk for stroke and increase in the cranial pressure is going to put somebody at that. Um, glucocorticoids, um, like the dexamethasone um, that we've talked about before, that helps in uh, decreasing cerebral edema. Antipyretics, we're typically, typically going to be using more like acetaminophen, um, to try and get um, temperatures down if we have any um, increased hyperthermia secondary to brain injury. And then there could be some antihypertensive medications, but we won't be spending a ton of time on that. Um, and then we've already talked about the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors. Um, and again, the big thing with those is they um, may improve the functioning for the person, but it does not slow the progression of the disease.
Um, interventions to lower intracranial pressure. So positioning is one of those big things. We're going to um, raise the head of the bed. Usually um, 30 degrees is going to be um, important. And then we really want everything to be aligned well. Um, we don't want the neck hyperextended or any funky positions there that could cause, um, think about that sp spinal cord and how if that is um, <clears throat> out of line, then that's going to um, affect that. As far as activity, um, usually um, we are going to um, try not to cl cluster care. We're going to try and um, spread um, care procedures out over a, a long time frame so that we're not increasing that oxygen demand and compromise that cerebral perfusion. Airway management is always going to be important. So if they, um, they may end up needing to be suctioned, um, hyperventilation, um, I kind of talked about that. Um, <clears throat> but um, hyperventilation is not recommended in traumatic brain injury. Um, because it can affect our oxygen delivery. Um, bowel management, we're going to want to make sure that we give stool softeners or laxatives to try and keep them from having to push and do that vagal because that will increase intracranial pressure. Um, nutrition management, um, we'll want to make sure that we have, you know, appropriate diet. Um, <clears throat> the, the patient may end up needing some enteral feedings um, if they're unable to eat. And then... Um, Rehab is going to depend on really what's going on with the patient and um, how stabilized we can get them to. So um, we'll talk more about um, our exemplars of stroke, traumatic brain injury, uh, meningitis, and that in other podcasts. So I hope this overview was helpful, and I'm trying to keep it under 20 minutes. So um, let me know if you have any questions. Thanks.